Thanks for listening. The following is an audio presentation from High Country Christian Church. For more information, please visit www.highcountrychristian.com. Colossians chapter 3. We are halfway through our Colossians series. We cross into the second half of the book today. Um, If you have not been able to be here for the previous weeks, I encourage you to go check out the podcast. Uh, Take a look at what's on there. You'll see Colossians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 2. And then you'll see a funny little sermon that happened in between Colossians 1 and Colossians chapter 2 when we were so full of the Holy Ghost that we just left the playbook and, uh, and called an audible, and man, it was so good. Um, <laughs> praise God. But uh, you can go catch up on Colossians 1 and Colossians 2. Let me do just a moment of review. And I just realized I forgot to set my timer here, so let me set my timer so I don't preach till 3 o'clock in the afternoon, because I could. Um, let me just quickly bring us back up to speed. We talked about Colossae, the the city that this letter was written to, it's in the western part of what was then called Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey, Um, and you can still go to the same valley uh, that these cities were in, that these churches were in. There was three small cities, Hierapolis, uh, Laodicea, and Colossae, and um, of those three churches and of those three cities, Colossae was the smallest. It was a church that met in the home of a man named Philemon, who Paul writes another letter to in the New Testament, interestingly enough. Uh, this church was pastored um, locally by a young man who was raised within the church and grew up and became the pastor of the church, is what we understand. Um, his, his name was uh, Epaphras, and he was a student of Paul. He was a disciple of Paul, but Paul did not start this church in Colossae. It was one of the few churches that Paul writes to that he didn't actually start. He started the church in Ephesus. He started the church in Galatia, but he didn't, uh, you know, he didn't start this church in Colossae. And so he is taking them under his wing, as it were, as a father, and training them and educating them from a distance. He's in prison in Rome when he writes this letter, along with Ephesians and Philippians and, and Galatians. Um, but uh, Paul, it's interesting, has this vested interest in this tiny little seemingly insignificant church. This is one of the smallest churches in all of Asia Minor, yet Paul still finds a reason to write this potent letter about the gospel to them. And I think that is very encouraging because it tells me that God is interested in the little guys. Amen. God's not just interested in the big people doing big things. He's interested in the little people doing little things too. Amen. And so uh, as I've studied these things out and kind of dug into the history of this church, it's been very encouraging to me, and I pray that it is encouraging to you as well. Last week, we talked about chapter 2 and the the major things that Paul's dealing with in chapter 2. He's dealing with the extremes of two heresies that had come into that church and into the churches surrounding them in that Lycene Valley of of Western Turkey that we talked about. And these two kind of extreme heresies were Gnosticism and extreme Judaism or asceticism. 
Gnosticism and asceticism, which, were, which is extreme Judaism. Gnosticism's over on this side of the road, in this ditch, if you will. Uh, and Gnosticism says that uh, if you want to be spiritual, there's all these kinds of secrets that you've got to learn. There's this special revelation that's only, that's only there for special people and for ultra-super spiritual people. Uh, the Gnostics would reject anything physical. Uh, they thought that the, that the flesh and the physical was just absolutely based. There was no value to anything that happened. So you hug your wife and you kiss your wife, that's carnal, that's ridiculous, that's base. You're, you know, you're not spiritual. So here they are in this ditch, thinking that everything has to be hyper-spiritual. Then, on the other side of the road, in the other ditch, is asceticism, extreme Judaism, which is where they would punish themselves, punish their flesh, to try to be righteous, to try to be holy. And Paul comes in chapter 2 so beautifully with this corrective word that brings both groups out of both ditches and brings them right back to the middle of the road. And that is that Jesus did it all. You can't be a hyper-Judaism person. You can't be an ascetic over here trying to beat yourself and, and observe all these Hebrew traditions and this Hebrew law to try to make yourself righteous. He talks a lot about circumcision in chapter 2 because these were people who were not Jews. They'd gotten saved, and people came to them trying to convince them, hey, now that you're saved, you need to be circumcised if you really want to be in the club. And Paul's like, that doesn't, that's not valuable. God, God's interested in the heart. Here you are, gave your life to Jesus. You think somehow that's not enough you got to observe all these Hebrew feasts and new moons, and you can't eat pork and shellfish, and all these poor Gentiles are like, we love pork. <laughs> They're trying to get him to observe all the Hebrew laws, and Paul's like, y'all are in a ditch over here. You're on this side of the road. And then the Gnostics are on the other side saying, you got to be hyper-spiritual. you got to get special secret wisdom from God. And Paul says, no, 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 all the wisdom of God is found in the person of Jesus. All the Hebrew law was contained in what Jesus did. He lived that law perfectly so that you and I don't have to. Amen? So he brings him right back to the middle of the road. And that's where you and I need to stay. So if I had to, if I had to title last week's, I would say, get out of the ditch. That would be the title of last week's sermon. This, this one... Chapter 3, if I had to title this, I'd call it Out with the Old and In with the New. Out with the Old and In with the New. Let's read chapter 3. It's 17 verses long. Let's read it, and then we'll come back and make some comments on it. And I, I pray that you'll uh, get a lot out of it this morning. Chapter 3, verse 1, it reads, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members, which are on this earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. 
But now you yourselves are to put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents. Amen. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality." Wow, isn't that awesome? I, I love, I know that it takes up time in the message, but I love reading a whole passage like that. There's so much in it, and, there, and it gives us such a great backdrop of context for us to be able to understand what it is that we're reading and to be able to pick apart certain verses. There's things that stick out in this passage uh, that, are, that are things that Paul is trying to emphasize for us to understand. But man, without the value, or excuse me, without reading the whole thing in context, we can miss out on some of the value of the scriptures that we're going to focus on today. So I appreciate you bearing with me as I read all 20, what was it, 25 verses of that. Uh, you know, you just, you're never going to go wrong by reading the Bible. Amen. You just, you just can't make the wrong decision when it comes to reading the Word. If you're reading the Bible, it's automatically the right decision. So let's look through this chapter and make some comments on it and help us to understand. Paul shifts in his argument now. He shifts away somewhat from the discussion of chapter 2, and he begins to shift and define godly moral conduct in this passage. He begins to define godly moral conduct, and it's interesting to me that uh, we need this message just as much as they did in the first century. Amen? 
I, I would define myself as a person who really preaches grace. I believe in the grace of God. I consider myself something of a grace preacher. Yet, in this age of grace that we live in, uh, people don't want to don't read chapter 3. People want to pass over when they're told that they can't do this and they can't do that. Hey, you, you know what? You're not supposed to have filthy language. You're not supposed to be a fornicator. You're not supposed to be idolatrous. Put away wrath and, and anger and malice. People don't want to hear that anymore. Oh, well, brother, you know, it's all grace. I'll just do whatever I want and Jesus will be pleased. Eh, wrong. <laughs> Amen. How many of you know that God will always love you? No matter who you are, no matter what you do, there's always forgiveness for sin. There's always grace and there's always mercy made available to you and to me. But just because the Lord loves us doesn't mean he's pleased with us, right? Sometimes we do stuff just like, just like my kids do with me. Sometimes they do stuff that tick me off, and sometimes we do things that tick God off. And our lives as believers ought to be aimed at not just serving God, but pleasing God. I don't know about you. I want God to be happy when he thinks of me. I want him to say, well done, good, faithful servant. So in the age of grace, we still need to understand that conduct is important. The, the difference between the old and the new covenant when it comes to conduct is that the old covenant held out the perfect standard and said, try to do that, but you never will be able to. Try to live a perfect life. You'll never be able to do it. The law was out here in front of us, and it was just begging us to try to do it, knowing that we wouldn't be able to. That was the old covenant. You know the differences between the new covenant? The law's not out here anymore in front of us. It's written on my heart. God gave me a new spirit and a new heart, and he wrote his law on the inside, and now I'm compelled from the inside to live up to, by grace, what I couldn't do in the old covenant. Us having good behavior and having good moral conduct is just as important in the New Covenant as it was in the Old Covenant. The difference is the motivation is changed and the ability to do it has changed. You and I could never live up to the law under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. But now we can perfectly fulfill God's law because it's been written on the inside. That's when, why, why when we sin, it hurts. That's why when we do something wrong, our spirit man on the inside is going like, ooh, ooh, that wasn't the right thing to do. Why? Because we've got a new nature. His law has been written on the inside of me. So godly conduct and morality is just as important and just as valuable as it's ever been. God didn't lower the standard for us. He raised us up to meet the standard. Amen. Amen. Praise God. So Paul starts to define all of this for us and help us to understand how we are to live godly moral lives. Are you interested in that? I know I am. So let's look again at verse 1 and 2. And this, these are some very real clues. If, you, if, if I was you, I'd underline these in my Bible. These are clues on how to live a godly moral life. If then, verse 1, if then you were raised with Christ, and, 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 and truthfully, that word if could be translated since. Since then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is at, sitting at the right hand of God. Seek those things that are above. 
verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. I want to camp out here for just a moment. Set your mind on things above. I like the way it reads in the original King James. Set your affections on the things above. Set your affections. Cement your mind. Cement your affections. Cement your desires on things above, not on things of the earth. It's amazing to me that God has called us to dominion. He's called us to, to operate in dominion here in this world that we're in. But the, but the key to operating in dominion is not to set your mind on the things of the world. You'll never be able to have dominion over something that has you, that has your attention, that has your thoughts and your affections. Amen. You'll never, if you're afraid of something, if you're, if you're attached to something, if you're filled with um, anxiety or passion about something, you'll never be able to operate in dominion over that thing because you aren't possessing it, it's possessing you, right? Does that make sense? If I'm terrified of money, I'll never be able to operate, you know, what Sean was talking about, being diligent with what we have. If we're terrified of money, we'll never be able to manage it and be diligent. Right? If, I, if, I'm not, if, if my affections and my mind are set on the things of the world, I'll never be able to rise above the things of the world. We're called to live. The Bible says we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're called to live in this world, but having dominion over this world because our citizenship is in heaven. You see? You see that? So Paul is exhorting us here to set our affections, set our minds on things above. This word, set your mind, this phrase, set your mind, is a single word in the Greek. And it means to think inconsistent, excuse me, think consistent with something. To be in agreement with something. To have a consistency in your thought life. In other words... Let the word of God change the way that you think so that your thoughts are consistent with and in agreement with things above. I had, a, I had a very intense conversation this week with a friend of mine who is struggling in several different areas. And I love this guy so much. I just care about him so much. And we had some conversation, and I realized as I studied through this passage this week that one of the problems that he's struggling with is that he won't allow his mind to come into agreement with things above he wants to hold on to stuff down here. He wants, to, he wants to have his mind just infatuated with the things of this world, and it's preventing him from getting revelation. It's preventing him from seeing things the way they really are. This, this, is, this whole concept here is embracing God's perspective on everything. If God is not allowed to change your mind, you'll never go anywhere with him, Right? If, 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 the Lord's not, if the Lord doesn't have permission to come in and start to tweak the way you think, then he's, you're never going to get anywhere, right? So Paul's saying, listen, let your mind come into agreement with God's way of doing things instead of with the world's way of doing things. Because these two things are not always compatible. Amen. These two things are not always compatible. God's way of doing things and man's way of doing things are not always compatible. 
That's why he he tells the prophet, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So so high above the earth, uh, excuse me, so high are my thoughts above your thoughts, high as the heavens are above the earth. So, So high are my thoughts above your thoughts. God's way of doing things and God's perspective on everything is a hundred million bajillion gajillion times better than our perspective and our thoughts. So we need to come to God with humility and say, Lord, rearrange my thinking. Rearrange my thought patterns. Rearrange the way that I think so that my mind comes into agreement and into consistency with heaven's way of doing things. Set your mind on things above. Anchor your thinking in, uh, in the kingdom of God and in God's way of doing things. Now, he continues to go on here. And I want to jump to verse 5. This, this, what we just covered, what we just talked about in verse 1 and 2, is the key to everything we're getting ready to read throughout the rest of the chapter. You'll never be, husbands, you'll never be able to love your wives if you don't set your mind on things above. Wives, you'll never be able to submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord if you don't set your mind on things above. Amen. Children, you'll never be able to obey your parents in the Lord if you don't set your mind on things above. Now let's look at verse 5. There's some interesting phrases that Paul uses here that caught my attention. Verse 5. Therefore, put to death, everybody say put to death, your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. This is an interesting verse. Put to death your members. Now, whenever he's talking, whenever you see the Bible use the word members like that, that is the word talking about our flesh, okay? So Paul is not telling you, let me just clarify this real quick. Paul's not telling you to kill yourself, okay? He's not telling you to kill yourself. What he's telling you to do is put to death the old way of thinking and the old way of living. Put to death that old part of you that wants to pursue lusty, fleshy, sensuous activity, now, when I say sensuous, I'm not meaning sexual. I'm meaning sensual, things that are appealing to the senses, right? All this stuff that Paul's listing here, passion, evil desire, covetousness, covetousness. Oh, ouch. Covetousness. It's idolatry. Put to death that stuff. Kill it. Now, look at verse 8 because we're going to make a comparison here. Verse 8 says, But now you yourselves are to put off all these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Put off. Verse 5, he tells us to put something to death. Verse 8, he tells us to put something off. Isn't that interesting? If you dig into the things that he's dealing with, these issues, malice, blasphemy, you know, the stuff from verse 5, fornication and idolatry and covetousness, you realize something. Everything in verse 5 is an internal situation. Everything in verse 8 is an external situation. Everything in verse 5 is internal. It's soulish. It's in that area of your life, the mind, the will, and the emotions. It's internal. 
And he says, that stuff needs to be put to death. But this external stuff needs to be put off. Let's dig into it a little bit more. Go back to verse 5. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. That phrase, put to death, if you drill into it in the Greek, it means this. It means to cut something off from its source of life. Cut something off from its source of life. Essentially, put it to death. Makes sense, right? Cut it off from its source of life. If you're dealing with evil desire, cut that off from its source of life. Starve it. Stop feeding it, in other words. If you're struggling with fornication, stop feeding fornication. If you're struggling with uncleanness, covetousness, if you're covetous of, of something else that somebody has, stop feeding that desire and you'll cut it off from its source of life. You know how you've ever heard this, this uh, analogy before? How do you, how do you get a, a stray cat to leave you alone? Quit feeding it. Did you ever have a stray cat come show up at your door? And then your wife or your daughters are like, oh, it's, but it's so beautiful. Look at this little thing. And like, Let's get some warm milk. And guess what happens? Guess who's back tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And they're going to keep coming back as long as you keep feeding it. Paul says on the internal stuff of the soul, if you want to exercise victory in your life, quit feeding it. Quit inviting it back. You see, the stuff in verse 5, it's internal, so it's dealt with a little bit deeper. And the, the remedy for dealing with it is a little bit different. You can't put off fornication. You have to cut it off. You have to put it to death. Now, how do we do that? Well, I'm going to tell you in just a few minutes. Put to death, cut it off from its source of life, all of these things. Now, go back down to verse 8, and let's look at the difference, because it's subtle, but it's there. Verse 8, but you now yourselves are to put off all of these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. I just... Listen, I'm no more perfect than anybody else in this room. Every now and again, I let one slip. Right? Right? But how many of you know, Christians ought not be flying off the handle, spouting the F word. Christians ought not be yelling in their cars at the people driving in front of them. Christians ought not be practicing filthy language. Why? It's not gracious. It doesn't minister life at all. And we're in a culture right now, and something I've observed over the last five years probably, we're in a culture where it's becoming more and more okay for Christians to use foul language. Have you noticed that? I've been observing it. On social media, in conversations with people, it's just becoming more and more commonplace for Christians to just say, you know, Whatever. Paul tells us that's something that we need to put off. 
it's not a deep-seated issue that's got to be rooted out of you, right? It's not, you don't have to go to counseling to figure out how to stop swearing, right? You don't have to. You don't have to, like, go, you know, and get on this immersive therapy so I can figure out what my parents did to me in my childhood that's causing me to now use foul language. No, just stop swearing. Just, just put it off. How hard is it to take off a jacket, How hard is it to take off a a scarf and put it down? That's how easy it is to deal with these things. The other stuff, the soulish stuff, the stuff that's rooted in me a little bit deeper, I've got to find a way to starve it from its source of life. But this stuff, it's easy to put down. Blasphemy, no problem. Wrath, malice, no problem. All I've got to do is put it off. Take it off. Let it go, let it go. Right? Let it go. Man, if I if if I could if I could coin a hashtag for an entire generation, it would be hashtag let it go. Let it go. Oh, but you don't understand, but yes, yes I do. Let it go. I'm sorry that that happened to you, but let it go. Let's move on. Let's let all this anger and this wrath let it go. Oh, but I was betrayed. Of course you were. So was I. Big deal. Let it go. Everybody's been betrayed. Everybody's been hurt. Everybody, listen, the church has hurt everybody in it at some point. You know why? Because the church is filled with a bunch of hurting people. and, And hurting people hurt other people. It just happens. This is like going, taking your dog to a dog park. Okay? And, and one of the dogs pees on you. And you just go, that's it, I'm done with dog parks. Forget it. I'm done with dog parks. Never again. Can you believe that dog pee? Did that thing, little Fifi, peed on my shoe when I was at the dog park watching my dog? Can you believe that? How dare they let somebody like that in that dog park? And what you didn't see is your dog's over there peeing on somebody else. Right? Why? Because that's what you do in a dog park. Dogs pee. Just don't get mad at the dog. Let it go. Everybody's been hurt. Everybody's got some anger, some malice, some wrath. Everybody's got one of these things hanging around their neck. Just let it, just take it off. Put it off. Let it go. Let's keep going. Verse 5, he tells us to put these things to death. Verse 8, he tells us to put these things off. Verse 10, he tells us to put something on. Verse 10. Well, let's read verse 9 because this is good. Verse 9. Do not lie to one another since you've put off the old man with his deeds. By the way, we got rid of malice and anger and frustration and all those things in verse 8. and We've been putting off the old man. By the way, don't lie to each other while you're at it. Stop making it okay to tell little white lies. Selah. Let's go on to verse 10. And put on, or excuse me, and have put on the new man who's renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. I'm supposed to put to death some things in my life and then I'm supposed to 
put off a bunch of things in my life, and now after I've put off some things, I'm supposed to put something else on. So imagine you're getting dressed in the morning, and you have the option of putting on malice and putting on anger and putting on these things, or you have the option of putting on the new man. Wow. What if I started every day that way? while I'm getting dressed and checking my tie, my proverbial tie, in the mirror. Nobody wears ties anymore, unfortunately. It's very sad. Unless you work at Samaritan's Purse. I got, yeah. <laughs> Unless you work at SP, somebody's wearing ties, yeah. So when you're checking your tie in the mirror, what if instead of putting on all this other stuff, malice, hate, anger, bitterness, all this stuff, what if I put on the new man instead? What if as I looked in the mirror, I reminded myself that I was bought with a price and that somebody greater than me paid for me and shed his blood and shed his life on my behalf and he's given me the right to put on something better than what the enemy wants to put on me. Wow. Put on the new man who's renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Let's keep going. Verse 11. Where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. In other words, doesn't matter what your background is. doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what did or didn't happen to you. Your past is irrelevant when it comes to what you put on. Verse 12. Therefore... As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness. Put on long-suffering. Oh, man, that's a tough one. Put on long-suffering. You know what long-suffering is? It's patience. It's the ability to burn long. It's the ability to have a super long fuse. What if you put that on in the morning instead of putting on short-fusedness? Where you're just on the brink of explosion 24 hours a day. What if I put that off and instead I put on long-suffering? Verse 13. Bearing with one another. Forgiving one another. This is Christian conduct. This is how we're to live together. If Listen to this. This is amazing. I wish I could shout this to our generation. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Now, if I, if I was to read that verse in the context of today, you know what it would read like? Frustrated with one another, holding grudges against one another. If anyone has a complaint against me, I'm going to tell about it on social media. I'm going to do a video about how frustrated and irritated I am with the president. I'm going to do a video and, and, and talk about how frustrated and irritated I am with this person and that person. Can you believe what this group did or what they said? Can you believe what the, I'm this and that and the other? And we're just nitpicking each other to death in this generation. Paul says, you got a complaint against any other? He doesn't even say talk about it. He just says forgive. You got a complaint with somebody else? Let it go. Let it go. Why? Why? Because here's the deal. When, when we go after and try to get retribution against another believer or against anybody, 
Do you know what we're forgetting? Do you know what we're letting go of? We're forgetting that we ourselves have been forgiven of something. That's why he says, even as Christ forgave you. You see, as long as you and I keep in mind that we were forgiven, it becomes very easy to forgive. But you know why? Ten times out of ten, when you have a complaint against someone else, when you've got some beef with somebody, you've got some issue, ten times out of ten, the beef you have with them is not as substantial as what God forgave you of. Not nine times out, not eight and a half, ten times out of ten. Do you know why I can prove that biblically? Because you were born unrighteous. Your heart, we, every one of us was born at enmity with God. God was our enemy when we were born. We came into this world with a filthy sin nature and there was no hope for us outside of Christ. So no matter how bad you got hurt, what you were forgiven of is infinitely larger than whatever the beef is with anybody else. And the only way we get to live from that perspective is if we remember that Christ forgave us. Verse 14, but above all these things, put on love. I remember Sean taught this in a small group. You remember teaching this in a small group years ago? He talked about, he used the analogy of people getting dressed. Above all, put on love. Love was like the, the diamond necklace that went across all of it, that went over the top of it all. Lo above all, above all these things, put on love. It's the, it's the centerpiece of your wardrobe. It's the, it's the, well, it's the centerpiece of the wardrobe. It's what makes the whole thing Come together. Do you, you ever get dressed and, and somebody's like, oh man, those shoes tie it all together. Those shoes bring it all together. That tie brings the whole thing together. That wig brings it up. Whatever, I just want to make sure you're still awake. That thing brings it all together. That scarf brings the whole outfit together. You ever heard that kind of thing? Let me tell you what. Love brings it all together. How do I know that? Because of this last sentence, of all things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Love makes the outfit perfect. The word bond means to bring it all together and hold it together. <laughs> I'm going to put off the old man. I'm going to put on the new man. I'm going to put on all these characteristics of the new creation. And it's going to be the love of Christ in my life that holds it all and brings it all together. Now, let me finish by reading verses 15 through 17. We'll close with this. I wish I had time really to tackle the rest of the chapter. But I want to encourage you as I've been encouraging you from the beginning, read each chapter, whichever week that we're in. So this week we're in chapter 3. Read chapter 3 by itself every single day and see what you get out of it. Because I promise you it'll be valuable. Verses, verse 15 through 17, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body and thankful. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, 
Now, these two verses, I cannot overstate how important they are. Verse 15 says that we are to let the peace of God rule. Verse 16 says we are to let the word of God dwell. Let the peace of God rule. Let the word of God dwell. If you and I are going to walk in the way that we've just been talking, if we're going to live this Christian life that Paul has outlined for us, it becomes essential that we do these two things. This is the how. Okay, I've talked to you about the what, the where, the why, the when. This is the how. How do I put off the old man? How do I put to death these deeds of the flesh? How do I put on the new man? Two things. Let the peace of God rule. And let the word of God dwell. What does it mean to have let the peace of God rule? The word rule in the Greek is, is it, it comes to our understanding as like an umpire in a baseball game. Let the peace of God be the umpire. What is the umpire doing? He's calling the shots. Strike, ball, out, safe. You ever watch baseball? It's pretty boring. Actually, I kind of like baseball, but what does the umpire do? He calls the game. He calls the shots. In other words, he's in charge. Everybody on the field is playing to win, but it's the umpire who calls the shots. He's going to say if it was fair or foul. He's going to say if it was a ball or a strike. He's going to say whether or not you're safe or out. The peace of God is the umpire of our heart. If we want to walk in all of the things that Paul has expressed to us and outlined for us, one of the first things we have to do is learn to let God's peace call the shots. If you have peace, go for it. If you don't have peace, don't go for it. So many people have a hard time discerning God's will for their life. They have such a hard time trying to hear God about their future, about what decision to make, about where to go and what to do and who to do it with and where should I be. If we could just learn this principle, you 99% of the body of Christ would be doing the will of God all the time. If we would just learn to let his peace call the shots. Let his peace be the umpire. It's so easy to follow God when you're led by peace. So number one, we let the peace of God rule. Number two, we let the word of God dwell in our hearts. That means we don't just let the word of God visit our heart. We let the word of God dwell in our heart. Jesus said in John 15, you can go read it later, but he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you will and it'll be done for you. Too many of us, and I'm guilty of this, let the word visit our heart. but We don't necessarily let the word dwell in our heart. Feed upon his word constantly. 
feed upon. You know what? A lot of Christians have a no vacancy sign on their heart. Not only are they not letting the word of God dwell, they're just not letting it in at all. And then they wonder, why is my life this way? Why do I pray and nothing happens? Why do I, why do I struggle the way I do? Let the word of God dwell in you. Let the word take residence in you. How silly would it be if you moved into a house and never stayed there? He said, this is my address. This is where I live, but I'm only here once a month. You dwell and live all over the place. That's how we do the word of God. We say, you, Jesus, you can visit once, twice a month. You can, I tell you what, Lord, you can visit. I, I will put the word in my heart on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. I'm going to go to church and I'm going to get fed for the week. It's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, when you, when you put it in that kind of context, imagine if you only ate food once a week. You'd be like, well, I'd be skinnier. <laughs> yeah, you'd, you'd be dying, okay? <laughs> Might work for a couple of months, but then you'd shed all that fat and then you'd be back to normal and then it would start to become a detriment. But we do that with the Word all the time. We don't let the Word dwell in our hearts. We let the Word visit our hearts once every Sunday. Well, I'm just going to leave that right there. I'm going to just put that there. You can do whatever you want with it. And whatever you do, verse 17, we end with this. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see the pattern? Do you see the, the, the grand argument that Paul is painting here for us? He, says, he starts by saying, guys, I want you to marry your thoughts with God's thoughts. I want you to set your affections and set your mind on things above. I want you to embrace God's way of thinking and let that shape your way of thinking. And when you do that, here's some issues we're going to tackle. We're going to put to death some of these things that have been working in you, that have been working against you. We're going we're gonna to let off and take off and shed off some of these old attitudes and some of this sinful stuff that's trying to hold on to us. And, and we're going to put on the new man. We're going to put on what God's prepared for us to walk in. And if we're going to do that effectively and if we're going to stay there for the rest of our life, we're going to let the peace of God rule and be the umpire of our hearts. And we're going to let the word of God dwell in us and it's going to preserve us and it's going to keep us where we need to be kept. And the net result of that is that everywhere I go, everything I do, whether in word or in deed, I'm doing it as unto Christ. When I go to my job, I'm a productive, happy, joy-filled employee because I'm doing everything unto him. When I, when I walk in relationship with my spouse, I'm a happy spouse to be around. And I'm a joyful person to be around. I bring joy to my home. I don't suck the life out of my home. Why? Because I'm doing everything as unto the Lord. I'm recognizing I've been forgiven of much. My life has merit now because of the one who lives in me. And so everything I'm doing, I'm doing it for him.
My father, years ago, turned me on to the writings of a man named Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was a Benedictine monk in the, I believe, 16th century. He was a simple man. And he lived in a monastery, and he was the least of all the monks, of all the brothers. His job was like the monastery janitor. He cleaned up. He made breakfast for the brothers. and He was always the last one to get anything or the last one to come into prayer because he was sweeping or doing something in the kitchen. But he wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God. Practicing the Presence of God. And that book has helped me and it's helped many people throughout the years because he understood something. I can sweep the floor or do the dishes or make a meal as unto God. And if I do it for the Lord and I don't do it for the monastery, then God will get involved in my floor sweeping. If I can, if I can do it as unto God, it will actually invite his presence into whatever it is that I'm doing. And when that happens, God's glory begins to manifest. And he got to the point, I remember one of the phrases in the book, he said, he said, I've gotten to the point where I enjoy as much the kitchen duties as much as I do being in prayer with the brothers in the chapel. I've gotten to the place in my life where I practice the presence of God so thoroughly that literally everything I'm doing is for his glory. And guess what? He gets involved. What would our life look like if we set our mind on things above? What would our life look like if we did everything as unto God? If, if instead of trying to get even, I get quiet. If instead of trying to argue, I worship or I pray, or I invite God's presence into what I'm doing. I believe our lives would dramatically change. We wouldn't have an angry word to say because we're too enveloped in doing everything for Him. And His presence has come and it's filled everything that we're doing. Amen? It's hard to argue when you're in the glory. Amen? Amen. Well, that's enough for today. Let's stand up to our feet. We hope that this message inspired you and filled your heart with faith. If you would like to visit our church, check out www.highcountrychristian.com for service times and location information. Thanks again for listening to this audio presentation from High Country Christian Church, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.